Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 52. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Uptograph. And we're doing a mini-series going through David Pye's classic book, The Nature and Art of Workmanship. Uh, we're going through chapter by chapter, and we covered the introduction last time. And this time today, we're going to be looking at chapter one, which he's, he's uh, has titled Design Proposes workmanship disposes. Yeah, and as we go through this, I, again, am just kind of loving the format of this printing because you can go through, he makes a pretty clear argument for each paragraph. And the, the books, the the versions that we have of this book, they have such a nice wide margin and we can just fill it with notes for each paragraph. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, so it's kind of fun. Um, so Pi starts out this chapter talking about uh, this, this big... Um, interest in design in the past 20 years. And of course, he wrote this in 68. So if you uh, picture yourself back in that time, he's talking about the post-war era. And here in the US, that was that was the jet age. That was the atomic age. That's, you know, the you think about the, the 1957 Chevy with the big tail fins, and you think about the uh, the diners and the, the chrome everything. And, you know, the there's a lot of optimism, right? Mm. And so with that optimism came... Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, progress, there's a lot of uh, financial success, and the sense that the future was ours to claim. And so design was to reflect that, was to reflect this new technology um, in this new age of the atom and the jet and uh, our new, newly found industrial abilities. Yeah, so he describes this as an intensification of interest in design. Mm-hmm. But there's so much focus on design and design being the solution to uh, the, you know whatever particular technological problem we're having or whatever, design is getting too much credit. The book is not trashing design, right. uh, but it, he's saying design has a role and workmanship has a role. And he said, what I see around me right now is design is getting all of the credit when really Mm. we need to be looking at what uh, valuable contribution the actual workmanship itself makes to our experience of artifacts. Yeah, so um, he he makes this case. uh, There's a a sentence where he's talking about um, what design does and what workmanship does. So if if you imagine design as being the ideal, Right, it's the per- the perfect form on the the drafting table. It's the 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 perfect SketchUp, right? And then um, workmanship is what the result comes about from. Workmanship is the actual object yeah, the, made, the execution of it, or the the actual doing of it. So he just he says dis- design proposes, workmanship disposes, mm. and he's riffing off of a Thomas Akempis quotation that said it's a sort of a famous quotation man proposes god disposes meaning there is uh someone who is coming up with the idea proposing hey let's do it like this right and then there's another actor another being who is actually executing and doing things so you know uh pius is sort of riffing off of this idea saying what design is doing is saying here's the ideal here's the drawing here's the vision i have and then workmanship, what, what the workman does is actually disposes, it actually carries out the, the yeah. work that's being proposed. So this, he's saying it's a really important distinction because um, we're giving way too much credit to the designer when we have this whole other half of the picture of material right. production. So what we actually see around us is the result of the 
the worker, is the result of the, the artisan, right? Um, he says, uh, defects in workmanship can be corrected by the designer. Like he's saying, if, like, let's say the architect walks in and people are taking his design and they're, they, they wrecked some detail, they missed it, they overlooked something. He can say, whoa, 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 wait, back to the design. Let's go back to the drawing board. Let's look at this again. This is not what I envisioned. Yep. So he can correct that. But he says, no conductor can make a bad orchestra play well, which is yeah. an interesting picture to have I, in your mind. I love that that picture. So he's, he's again, talking about the proposer and the disposer, mm-hmm. the one who's saying the way it ought to be, and then the, the, uh, the person who's actually playing this out, right? And so he has this picture of the conductor and an orchestra. So you think about the roles yeah. of a conductor. A conductor is saying, yeah. okay, now you do this, and I want you to do this, and the conductor's really important. Mm-hmm. But, but he doesn't touch an instrument. But of course, uh, and also if you think about it too, part of what his argument is, is too many people are saying, man, that conductor mm. gets all the credit for that yeah. beautiful music I'm hearing. And he's saying, wait, there are people holding those violins. Right? Right. There are people in the orchestra playing as well. And so the, the conductor can be the best conductor in the world. But if I was holding that instrument, it wouldn't, wouldn't work out. Right. And so he's saying we need to see the unique role that workmanship has, what these musicians, as it were, can offer. So I think it's a really powerful analogy. Yeah. And uh, like the idea of, um, because like you said, Pi is not ripping design. In fact, he right. wrote another book about design. Right. Yeah. Like he, he highly values design. But in, in this argument, he's saying we need to look at workmanship uh, as a different thing entirely than design. And the the thing that we most interact with when we look at an object, like it's not necessarily the ideal that we're seeing, but it's how it was executed. Right, it's, or sort of like the score too, you know, the conductor, the musicians, they're working off a score, they have a composition in front of them. So you have this composer, that's, I'm sort of adding into this this picture, this analogy. You can You can look at the score and say, these are the notes that are to be right. played. That's the ideal version. Right. Right. But even within that, I think everybody, anyone who's who's read any sort of music knows, well, those are just the notes. And they kind of say, there can be little, you know, notes on there saying, hey, play it fortissimo. There's a little bit of direction. But really, when you hear the same piece played by different musicians, it oh, yeah. sounds totally different. Yeah. You can add a flair uh, in, a, in a character to it that that totally changes the way that the music is perceived. So that's the kind of thing that, um, I mean, I've heard, uh, you know, people playing uh, Beethoven in a very exaggerated, characterized uh, way that is almost comical. It's very mm. modern sounding, mm-hmm. highly, highly dramatic, over-dramatized. And it's it's a different feeling than someone playing this super straight, you know, um, much more regular feel, but it's the same notes, or all the same notes. And I think that kind of feature of the unique role is what Pi is trying to bring in. And that's, I think, why the musical analogy is so powerful to communicate what he's trying to communicate in this book. Yeah. So, like, if we uh, bring the the metaphor back to, I I think I mentioned, you have a SketchUp drawing, right? Mm -hmm. And you have fixed dimensions, and you you have a very uh, precise... Um, very precise plans for, say, a, a shaker table. And you want this replicated or reproduced in a factory setting. These tables would all come out identically, mm-hmm. right? If you take 
an individual group of woodworkers. When things are working properly. Right, when things right. are working properly. Yep. You take a, a, a room full of woodworkers and you say, here's the plan, run with it. They will, to varying degrees, be um, you know, made according to the plan. But some will differ, and some will go so far as to change the plan to um, for their table to fit what they have in mind for it. So you have a sense where skill can do that, but also lack of skill can diverge from the plan as well, mm -hmm. right? So creativity can allow you to modify the plan, but if you don't have the skill to execute the design, that is a, a shortcoming in the part of the, the craftsman or the worker. Mm -hmm. And so Pi is saying, what we encounter in the world has to take into account that those the either the highly skilled ability to be creative to a design or the lower skill inability to execute the design but that's what we come across every day and so what that offers is a lot of interesting variety in um the objects around us right and so he i mean fundamentally what he's arguing in, in this chapter and it really is just setting up the book because it is it is really the 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 backbone or the the foundation, I guess, of of what proceeds in the other in the um, uh, following chapters. He says our environment, in its visible aspect, owes far more to workmanship than we realize. Mm. And that's you know, it's sort of just that was is his way of saying what we've been trying to summarize is that he's saying we got to pay attention to how this is actually pulled off, mm -hmm. how it's actually executed. So like thinking about the SketchUp analogy, the the picture, someone can create a SketchUp drawing. Here are the plans, right? I've designed this thing, and they can you know send it out, put it on the internet, and a hundred people can make it. Mm. And let's just say for the sake of the illustration, all hundred people are faithful to all of the dimensions, perfectly faithful. It's right on with the dimensions, um, the, the the joinery or the whatever, the size of the thing. But we all know that those hundred artifacts are not going to look the same. Right. That there's something else to that that is it's they're going to be executed in a little bit different way. That only the workmen, that only the only the uh, the artisan themselves can actually uh, really impact a change that a SketchUp drawing or some blueprints can't actually convey. It's not just about what words or drawings can convey. It's actually about what is coming out of the hands of the artisan. Yeah. And uh, Pi then, he kind of uh, turns aside for a minute, but then you, you recognize, you realize that it's not really turning aside, but he starts to talk about materials yeah. and quality of materials. And he says... Uh, we talk as if like materials confer a quality into the objects made, right? He talks about you know silver and gold and ivory and ebony, like these uh, quality materials, uh, beautiful materials. But he says raw materials are really not anything until they've been skillfully worked, right? You have he says like English walnut is not a good material. He said it's mostly firewood and leaf mold, right? So yeah. he's talking about the tree. And where do you get the materials? You have to process the tree. If you want gold to do some sort of like jewelry, or if you want to do some um, beautiful, you know, highlights or accents on some hardware or something, gold is, is in the rocks, right? You have to work the rocks heavily with ingenuity, with skill, with an understanding of the material to get that out of it. Right. He says good material is a myth. 
Which is an interesting thought. Yeah, I mean, I I had never that had never crossed my mind until I heard him say that. But then he he went. He's talking about the tree, um, you know, the English walnut, and he talks about it's not until the workman does these things: felling, converting, drying, selecting, machining, setting out, cutting, fitting, assembling, finishing, that you can say, "Wow, look at that material! That is beautiful." Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> right, which, which is an interesting thing because it kind of is a different side of the coin of the argument of how the designer gets the credit for the beauty when it's actually the execution by the worker that, mm-hmm. that draws that out. So you give the credit to the raw materials for the beauty, but it's actually the maker who drew that out of them. Mm-hmm. And um, even like if you, I mean, you could design, you could say, put some of that beautiful curly, you know, walnut right in there. Mm-hmm. Well, selecting something is, I, mean, I don't think a lot of credit right. goes, so you can say, there you go, right. I, you've chosen that. You but someone's, someone's got to do that. Someone's got to properly prepare that material and, and put it into place in a way that's uh, compelling. Yeah. So, you know, as I'm reading through this again, I'm thinking of ways to argue with Pi. Yeah. I'm like, well, wait, there are some places where you can, well, you know, we talk about uh, like pottery is like the only handmade object, you know, the, the only handcraft that's truly, you can truly just make an object with your hands. You yeah. don't need tools. If you and want I, to be literalistic about yeah, it. If yeah. If you want to literally only do handwork, you just make <laughs> pots, basically. There's yeah. probably some other stuff. Well, like I do grinding. drive all my nails by hand. I just <laughs> yeah. punch them. You just, with your fist. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking of that. Like, if you have a source for clay, perhaps that is a good raw material. But still, you can't make a pot in a stream bed. Yeah, well, you got to put some work to it. I think that I think the thing it's I I agree with you. I think when I was reading this again, I thought Pi's kind of funny here about this. I mean, I, I think he's trying to be precise, but at the same time, I, I, he also talks about he doesn't like the word handmade because he says this is a social term, not a technical term. Mm. And I would say, well, y- yes, it is not a technical term, but it doesn't mean it's not a valuable term. Right. It's, Social terms are useful terms. Yeah, and so with this kind of thing too, I mean, I definitely have uh, some things with pi that I don't really get. You know, when he's saying good material is a myth, I think what he's trying to highlight is the workman is so involved in everything. The final result is very much dependent on the workman-like approach to processing that material. But obviously, anyone who, who has worked wood knows the difference between Good material and bad material, yeah. as it's you know put in, just in common uh, speech, maybe not technically accurate, but we all know some material is conducive to certain ends yeah. and turns out better than other material. And so this material takes a nice edge. It has a you know I can make crisp cuts. It's not too hard. It's got a beautiful sheen to it. So there are characteristics of a material that are um, that are beneficial for working and also beautiful yeah that some materials don't have so I'm, I'm, yeah i think it is interesting that pi kind of picks on this a little bit yeah. to make his point i i feel like he gives us that back sort of at the end of the section on materials where he says some materials promise far more than others yeah but only the workmen can bring out what they promise so he's allowing now he's, yeah, sure. he's coming back to say some materials do have more promise of beauty than others. So yep. I feel like he, he threw us a bone or maybe someone read this and said, I don't know, David, I think you should, <laughs> you should just drop something there about materials because all materials are not necessarily the same. 
uh, even of the same species, right? You can have beautiful and you can have horrible. And he does make that case about the uh, the English walnut. You know, some parts of the tree are are rotting bark, right? Mm-hmm. So that has very little potential, but there are other parts of the tree that have much greater potential. And, you know, through different uh, materials, gold, silver, ivory, he talks about them as precious materials. So there is some intrinsic value there, mm-hmm. uh, even in their, their rawness. But he says, um, basically that process is what makes a material good. Yeah. So what he's, what he's talking about here then is he's setting up that kind of thing and saying workmanship has so much, uh, impact on the, the quality of the results or the success of the result. Um, and what you would think, okay, so now he's going to say, and all that mass manufacture garbage, we need to get rid of that. <laughs> I know. No, that's actually, shocking. that's actually not at all what he says. He says this, uh, the greater part of all manufacture now is mass production, 1968, mm-hmm. in which, although there is some bad workmanship, much is excellent. Right. And so what he's saying is, uh, he's not saying, oh, so now to really get at that, we we need to get rid of mass production and really focus on handwork, as mm-hmm. it were. He actually says, no, uh, mass production can produce some very... Um, very excellent workmanship. Yeah. Uh, some beautiful things can be produced. And so he also talks about, he spends time at numerous points throughout the book. He says, you know, a lot of shoddy work is passed off as sort of as um, revered. Uh, shoddy handwork is revered as sort of having this intrinsic value that he says is, it's just shoddy work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's not arguing for that. Um, but what he specifically says, he says, um, you know, there's, you, you can theoretically have, um, and he is seeing lots of quality mass production work, and he's also acknowledging there is a poor handwork that is done, and you can have the reverse. You can have shoddy mass production. You can have really quality handwork. But what he's really getting at here with this, he says what mass production can't do is it doesn't give you a range of qualities, mm-hmm. meaning... Um, he he says everything's so uniform. It lacks depth, subtlety, doesn't have overtones or variegation or diversity. He's got a whole chapter on diversity, and so some of this you can you can theoretically mimic. You know, like mm-hmm. if you go to I remember you know you walk into you know Target, a store to look at some like you know some kitchen plates, and you'll see they kind of almost look handmade. You know, mm-hmm. like, oh wow, interesting. What is this plate or yeah. this pottery? And then you realize, oh wow, this is mass produced it's It's totally it's fake handmade but so that kind of variegation of texture yeah can be mass produced but i think what he's getting at with that is if you pay close enough attention it's it doesn't have the same liveliness that um that handwork is able to do so he's saying mass production is great he's a fan of mass production but he said it's limited in its qualities that it can it can you know give to an object yeah, Joshua, I remember you talking about going into a, a coffee shop and you realize that, so the floor, it looks like it has these floorboards and they're all like four plane texture. Mm-hmm. And you realize that those were, you know, the like click together vinyl flooring, yeah. right? But they were all textured with that appealing handmade looking texture, but each one is essentially identical, right? Sure. They all have the same they might have like Variety. five patterns or something yeah. that they just reproduce, and then when and you... so you lay it down randomly, and it it has a nice look to it. There's a, there's a a sense of diversity to it, but it's not actually there. Um, but then on the flip side, also, 
you know, Pi would probably say, I don't want a handmade automobile. Mm -hmm. I don't want, uh, I might say, you know, a handmade uh, smartphone is probably going to have some problems. Yeah. I mean, there there's a sense in which, you know, there are hands involved in the assembly of the smartphone, but not in making the chip, right? There's not, there are no hands involved in, in the manufacture of the battery from the raw materials. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because, as, as Pi is saying, mass production quality is very predictable. Yep. It's, it's a very fixed quality. So you don't want a car that someone is making from start to finish. It will look totally different than another car. You know, like in um, boat building, uh, you build according to a form and a design and you even loft. So you create these frame members based exactly off the design. You're actually tracing a full-size design to get frame members. But the boat wanders all over the place such that you wouldn't want to go directly overhead and see if it's symmetrical because they're not. Mm -hmm. um, so you wander from the design because it is handmade. Uh, that wouldn't be so good for a car because imagine trying to keep the thing aligned, you know, mm -hmm. or something going yeah. down the road straight. Well, I think it's interesting because he talks about uh, at the end of this chapter, he talks about you know, a street full of parked cars. Yeah. So there's this nice design of a car and you have a street of parked cars. You can look at the individual car and say, wow, that's really sweet. I yeah. love this detail. This I is like, great. Yeah. I got this little thing. Now look at a parking lot, a Walmart parking yeah. lot full of that exact same car, yep. right? And you'd say, well, that's kind of boring looking. Yeah, <laughs> right? I, I, mean, I remember uh, early on when we had this whole issue, this backlog with uh, these chips for new vehicles and seeing a picture from a parking lot in California completely filled with like these Ford pickup trucks that all were identical. So if you pick out one of those trucks and you can imagine somebody getting that truck and he's like, this is my truck, I'm gonna put some bumper stickers on it, I'm gonna get some this and that, it's gonna be my own thing, right? I'm gonna make it my own. But in that parking lot, in that sea of sameness, there's nothing special about any of them. It's like Hot Topic. <laughs> right, the sea of sameness. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because you're being a rebel by going there, right? Yeah, with the you're, same shirt everyone else is yeah. rebelling with. Um, but so then he talks about, you know, as well, I love this at the end, how he kind of ties this back in. He's like, uh, he says, this would be as if the same short tune of clear, unmodulated notes were being endlessly repeated. Mm -hmm. so, so he's coming back to the musical analogy. It kind of makes me think of, let's just say, theoretically, the, you know, the Nokia uh, phone ring, mm -hmm. right? Let's say someone loves that little combination of notes, right? If everybody has that on their phone, it loses its charm because it's the same thing over. Yeah. You would never listen to a full hour-long recording of that's, that those notes being played. No. Because it over becomes over, monotonous right? immediately. Yeah, so monotony is what is result. It is the result if you just let mass production do its thing, you'll get monotony. And so he's saying, "Hmm, okay, so we got to be careful about this." And I think what's helpful about this is uh, he's trying to he's designing furniture for mass production. So he's mm -hmm. he's not saying get rid of the machines. He's saying we got to be mindful of what workmanship can bring to this. Um, and what he does with this, talking about this, he's introducing this concept of scale, scale of perception. So he's saying the motor car, beautiful car, love it. I don't want to see a whole parking lot full of the identical car. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to be thinking about this whole area or this whole scene, I want more variety in it. And so he's thinking about um, 
aesthetic aesthetic um, perception at certain ranges. Mm. You have you can say you know up close there's some variety but some sameness, and then you take you know steps back and you say I still want to see variety and sameness, and then you go back from you look at the landscape and I want to see variety and sameness. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have monotony anywhere, and so you have to think about. Um, if you if every single car was handmade and designed by the maker out of the mind of a maker, <laughs> yeah, think about what a parking lot full of that would be. Yeah, just yeah. chaos. There's no order to it. So I think it's like this unity and diversity thing that he's playing with. This uniformity, this um, smooth flat lines with the salt and pepper of texture and workmanship and uh, yeah. variety. Yeah, I mean, the example he brings in to illustrate that is he says a harbor full of fishing boats is another matter. So mm. if you've ever looked out at a in a fishing village, the boats could be, you know, 50 years old and wooden hauled, or they could be brand new fiberglass. They have the same general form, right? Especially, uh, it's often very uh, geographical. So you have the West Coast lobster boats, you have the East, the Down East, you know, and they're, they're made with the 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 character of the maker shines through but they're all they have an element of of boatiness to them right there's something yeah. that ties them together in that but they're diverse and unique right. and no two are the same yeah uh so that's that's an interesting example that he comes around to but he he kind of leaves us with a uh, uh kind of a hanging question he says why do we accept this as inevitable and he's talking about the um the monotony. The monotony, yeah, yeah, of mass production. Why do we accept this? Yeah. Why are we rolling with this? Because he's like, we're in charge of this. Yeah. We make the decisions. Why are we fine with losing uh, interest and uniqueness in the objects that we're surrounded with? Yeah, and so he, he closes this chapter by saying this, unless workmanship comes to be understood and appreciated for the art that it is, uh, our environment will lose much of the quality it still retains. So that is setting up the book, saying, if someone says, who cares about understanding workmanship, we're going to quickly be, um, you know, handing over all of our production to mass production. And we're going to be losing what's so special about uh, our environment around us, that we want to see, you know, human involvement in the world. We want variety and texture. We don't want everything mass produced. So we have to, therefore, because of that, we have to have clear in our minds why is workmanship valuable? Yep. Why should we be involved with the making of our stuff? Yeah, so he's, Pi's just getting started here. It's, <laughs> it's great that he's starting to frame up this argument. You can feel it uh, starting to take shape. And uh, we'll cover uh, the next chapter in the next podcast. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Mortis and Tenon podcast. Uh, if you haven't already, you can subscribe Uh, here, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, uh, just leave them below. We'd love to interact with you about this. Thanks for listening.